I kind of feel like I should walk out and say, last time on seventh heaven. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's like really, anyways. Um, so if I tell you the number 525,600 is the first word that comes to your mind, minutes. And then the next part of that would be, how do you measure the life of a woman or a man? Right? Like, if you've ever seen Rent, you know that reference. But there are 525,600 minutes in an average, in average, in every year. Sometimes there's less. Then there are 525,600 minutes in a year. In every single year, there are 52 weeks, which means that there are, in every year, are 10,080 minutes every week for 52 weeks to make 525,600. Every day is 24 hours. So seven 24-hour days equal 168 hours in a week. And if I were to ask you to describe this week, you might use a couple terms. You might say it was good. You might say it was all right. You might say it was great. Or you might be Ben and Whitney Stroop, and you might say, holy cow, have, this, have we had a week? Really, we're up to the point now where it's been a month, right? And I, I, don't, I don't tell you this to, like, make you feel bad for me. This is just, you all know life and how it goes. We uh, had a leak in the basement bathroom. The shower was leaking, and so we hired a contractor who said he could come out, and we, we waited for him, and he, and he came out, and he started un, un, ripping out that shower, and while he was ripping out the basement shower to replace it and fix all that, we discovered that the upstairs shower, which was the only other shower in the house, was also leaking, right? Some of you are like, ooh, that's not good. So he stops working on the downstairs shower and immediately begins fixing the upstairs shower, which, you know, takes a couple days. All of that gets in line. As that's getting in line and fixed up, he calls me, which and he's not allowed to call me anymore. He calls me and he says, by the way, while we were doing that, we realized that your plumbing is completely backed up and there's something probably in the basement pipe. So we're planning on digging up some of the concrete in your basement to replace the pipes. At that point, the tears started rolling, right? Luckily, they got it with a snake, but somehow, while all of this is happening, <laughs> the pilot light on our water heater goes out. And the water heater, the plumber was like, well, relight pilot light, it might be that, it might be something else. So while we're relighting the pilot light, we accidentally, unknowingly to us, bumped the thermostat and turned the hot water heater all the way down. So for days, we're taking cold showers because we refuse to call the plumber to fix the hot water heater. Like, we'll just take cold showers the rest of our lives. Dishes can be dirty, it doesn't matter. Then, if you remember, like, earlier last week when we had that major storm, my contractor calls, and he goes, you know how it rained a lot last night? Yeah, there's water coming up in the bathroom floor. So you know that bathroom floor we weren't going to replace? Mm-hmm. You have to dig it up and waterproof the bathroom. Okay, sure. I, at this point, hate water, construction, homeownership, really pretty much anything, right? And so it just keeps going and going. So Whitney and I are texting each other because she's at work and I'm at work. And I said, literally, this week could not get any worse. And Whitney calls me not, with, not within five minutes. Remember how this week couldn't get any worse? <laughs> you know. And she goes, you know that Colby cheese we bought earlier this week that Abel's eaten at pretty much every meal since we bought it? Kroger's recalling it because there's listeria in the Colby cheese, so we're all probably going to get sick now. 
I'll have you know that a grown man cried in his office this week. <laughs> and I was, it was a week, right? Like, if you think about the last week of your life or the last two weeks, you know, like, maybe it wasn't that bad for you, but you've had that week in your life, right? And you've had that moment in your life, and you've also had the other end of it, because if I asked you about the best week of your life, you would probably tell me about a vacation your family went on, or about the first time you brought a baby home, or you might tell me about your, your honeymoon and the week of your wedding. Whatever it was, if I ask you about your best week, you can, you can get to it pretty quickly. If I ask you about your worst week, you can probably get to it pretty quickly and remember. But if you think about it, there's a lot of weeks in your life that kind of go by. And at the moment, they seem big or small. They seem great or bad. But really, they all just kind of sort of blend together, right? Because most of your life, you don't document. I mean, if you think about the, the documentation of your life up to this point, there's pictures of you as a baby, there's pictures of you as a two-year-old, there's pictures of you growing up a little bit less and less, and then you turn 18 and there's these weird pictures of you leaning against a tree and like with really bad hair if you're, if you're my age and you had to have senior pictures taken, and, and then you get, you know, there's this gap again, and then there's some pictures of your wedding and some pictures of you as a parent, but gradually less and less, your, your life is less documented the older you get. And it's okay, like, you're not the only one. It's not that no one loves you, but it's, it's the way it goes. I, I have this weird thing that happens in my life. My sister-in-law is who we call Tourist Tara, because everywhere she goes, she takes pictures like she's on vacation. Like, Tara, we're just eating breakfast. You don't have to take pictures of us right now. Like, let's remember this moment. So there's always these weird gaps when I get together with my sister-in-law, and there's 100 pictures of me on Facebook, and then there's three or four months go by, and no one sees a picture of me, and then all of a sudden there's 100 pictures of me. Like, so it kind of you know, no? Okay. Well, whatever. Like, just go home and I know the cats play at one, I promise. We'll get done before that, okay? So, but the interesting thing about this is if you look at the most important weeks in history, you'll notice that some of them are really well documented. If I tell you about September 11th, you can tell me about times, you can tell me about places, you can tell me about memories. But even so, even though it changed the course of our history, even though it changed the course of our, of our country's history, if you went internationally to, to some other countries, they probably wouldn't really know too much about what you're talking about. If we talked about some of the bigger weeks during World War II, there are some countries who could name some facts and, and places, but there are a lot of people who largely don't think their world was changed in 1945. And it kind of, as you go back further and further, you realize that there have been some historical times and some historical events, but really... There is one week that completely altered the course of history and changed the world. And there's this one set of 168 hours that, unlike any other seven-day stretch in history, changed everything. And it's the last week of Jesus before he goes to the cross. We have documentation of Jesus' life and we have it in the form of, in the Bible of the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're, they're the four biographies of Jesus. But what's interesting even about the biographies of Jesus is they don't really follow the typical documentation, right? Like I said, you have a lot of baby pictures. There's one story about Jesus as a baby, maybe two, one as him as a toddler. Then there's this couple of year gap. Then there's one story about Jesus as someone who's probably seven to 10 years old. Then another 15 to 20 year gap. And then the story of Jesus really takes off. And so we just had these few pictures of him leading up to age 30. And at age 30, Jesus starts his ministry. 
And it's there that the documentation in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really starts to fill out and kind of tell you more details and, and fill you in on what's happening. But what's interesting is if you were to take every story of the life of Jesus and lay it end to end, there would be a decent chunk from those first two years, but disproportionately a much larger chunk of the four stories of Jesus are devoted to the last week. And it's not an accident. It's not as if they were getting to the end and realized, oh no, we need to add more words to this term paper. We better really start filling it out. It's because even the writers of the Gospels knew that this week was the most important week in the history of the universe. And so they went to painstaking detail to document the biggest, three, the biggest week, the biggest 168 hours in the universe. And so together, for the next couple of weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, we're going to study those 168 hours together. And, it, and it's a, such a, a compelling thing because if you look at this story, there are so many stories jam-packed into this last week. And it's not an accident. It's that way because Jesus knew this was it. It's because Jesus knew where we were going and where we were headed, and he knew that this was his big moment. If you've ever, every movie you've ever watched, one thing has happened, and I can almost guarantee it because it's a rule amongst screenwriters. You can do some research on this if you want, but the rule amongst screenwriters and, and, and film producers is the first five minutes of the movie, above all else, has to make you like the main character. The first five minutes of any movie is devoted to you being drawn into the main character, whether you like them or hate them, whatever the director wants, but the first five minutes of the movie is designed for you to be entranced by them. And now every movie you've ever watched, you're going to watch it and go, okay, I see, that's the moment, right? Like, like this is the moment when I realize this is, I want to follow along with this person. This is the moment when I realize I want to know what else happens. That's, it's the first five minutes of the movie are incredibly important because you are drawn in in that moment. And so if I was writing a movie about the story of Jesus last week, I would start with what we call the triumphal entry, and the triumphal entry you probably have heard of as Palm Sunday. If you grew up in church, maybe you've been to a church where the Sunday before Easter, the kids bring fake palm branches in that they bought off Oriental Trading, and they wave them, and they say, Hosanna, right? Like, and so Zach was giving me a hard time because this is not Palm Sunday. It's like five Sundays before, but Zach's not very good at math either. So, so I had to explain to him why we had to start this far back. But Palm Sunday is this day when everything starts to change. Palm Sunday is the day of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It's the scene of Jesus riding into town on a donkey. And it happens in Matthew chapter 21. It happens in all four of the Gospels, but we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21's version today. And it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This has never happened before. And so as they come down the Mount of Olives, they're headed to Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is about a 2,600 tall 
2,600-foot-tall summit, and they're, and they're climbing down, and Jesus says to the disciples, go ahead of me and get a donkey for me to ride in on. And this is not by accident. This is not, this is not by chance. This is all fully intended and fully intentioned. Because as they're riding into Jerusalem, they're riding into Jerusalem on the week of Passover. And Passover is the Jewish celebration that happens when, when they celebrate when they were let go from Egypt because the angel of death passed over their doors and, and, and took the firstborn son of all of the Egyptians. And, and it's a big celebration for the Israelite people. And the rule of law for the Passover was if you were able, you had to travel from your home to Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb for Passover. And so Jerusalem, a town of typically about 100,000 people, on average during Passover, especially in this time when Jesus is, is walking the earth, would see about 2.5 million people come into the city. Right? So you can imagine if, if, if that many people descended on a regular-sized town, how crowded things would get how quickly. And so what's happening is as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he's not the only one. And because there's not major hotels, because there's not big resorts in Jerusalem, what people start doing is just pitching tents along the side of the road, and they're just putting up camp anywhere they can. So they're just for miles and miles, as far as you can see, there are families just living on the side of the road for the week of Passover. And there are families just there, just celebrating, waiting, doing whatever it takes, because they had to be in Jerusalem, because that's what they have to do. And so Jesus decides that he's going to climb down the Mount of Olives and he's going to come through this journey. And there's no doubt, people all along the side of the road who know who Jesus is, who know what he's about to do, and then he starts on this journey riding on a donkey. But it's not by accident. Matthew tells us that this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king come to you, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so as Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, good Jewish boys and girls, good Jewish men and women see it happen, and their minds immediately flash back to this book called the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah was a prophet who lived hundreds of years before, and in what we know is chapter 9, verse 9 of his book, he told the people of Jerusalem, your king comes in riding on a donkey. And so these Israelites who are camping out, who know the story of Passover, who know the story of Zechariah, who have heard rumors about this guy named Jesus, see him riding in on a donkey. And as he starts to descend the Mount of Olives, you can imagine word starts to spread. Right, 2.5 million people who all know the same story, who all have the same history, who all have the same hope, see this guy they've heard about, see this guy they've seen raise the dead, see this guy they've seen heal the blind, see this guy they've heard teach riding in on a donkey, and they're all going, Zechariah said this is what's going to happen. And you can imagine the buzz building, right? I mean, you can imagine as he's walking down the road and people just start filing in behind him. People just one by one are just walking right behind him. I don't know where he's going. I don't know what he's doing, but we're headed to Jerusalem and he's our king because he's on the donkey like Zechariah said. And check this out. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they placed, colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? And so the buzz is building. Momentum is is carrying. Word is spreading. Everyone in town knows the story and knows what's happening. And so they start waiting and they they see the caravan coming and they're laying their coats down and they're waving the branches and they're having this party. But something so interesting happens. You see, for a large number of these people, they have spent their entire life looking for a king. But they're looking for a king who will overthrow Rome. They're looking for a king who will get into political office for them. They're looking for a king who overthrows the emperor because the emperor has made life pretty miserable for the Israelites, and the Israelites have a long history of being made miserable. And all they want is just a king to call their own. And so when Jesus comes and they hear this talk of king and they see the picture of him on the donkey and they see him coming through and they're going, this is our king, he's coming. And I imagine, too, that there is a large group of people who, from a long way off, see him coming. And all they see is that he's riding on something. And all they hear is just the buzz of hundreds, and if not thousands, of people following him. And they start to get their imagination going. Because when a king comes to town, he comes into town one of two ways. The first way he comes into town is on a donkey. If a king comes to another country or another town on a donkey, he's coming in peace. He's coming to meet with the king or to to visit or whatever. But if a king comes in on a horse, he's coming for war. And so I imagine that's not for the whole 2.5 million But for a large portion of the Israelites, they see Jesus riding in, and they've heard him talk about the kingdom of God, and they've heard him talk about what he's going to do, and all they can think is, this is the day we overthrow Rome. This is the day we finally get someone in office who believes what we believe. Because you, you can understand their hope, right? You can understand that, that it, it, the way Jesus has been talking about the kingdom and the way Jesus has been talking about how he is, the, he is the Savior and all of this is coming, that certainly this is the moment where Israel's troubles are overthrown and Israel makes life good again. They return to this promised land that they had hoped for and everything is okay. They see Jesus coming and they think, our struggles are over. But in this moment, there's a drastic change. Because as he draws closer, and as the crowd gets bigger, and as the buzz grows, I have no doubt that some of the people start to whisper, is he, is he riding on a, on a donkey? And someone will say, yeah, that's what Zachariah said he would do. But, well, yeah, but if he's on a donkey, that means peace. I wanted war. If, if he's on a donkey, that means he's not here to get rid of the emperor. And I want them gone. If he's on a donkey, that means that politics as usual. And, I, and I, I, I don't have evidence to back it up, but there are enough people who agree that I feel comfortable saying that there, I have no doubt there were people who laid their coats down 
and picked them back up. That there were people who were waving palm branches who just kind of laid them there and walked away. Because they got caught up in the buzz, they got caught up in in the word, they, they thought this was it, but they quickly realized that Jesus had completely different intentions. You see, they wanted power, but Jesus came for mercy. They wanted power. They wanted, they wanted politics. They wanted a king, but Jesus wanted mercy. They wanted prestige. They wanted notoriety, but Jesus was coming for surrender. They wanted influence, but Jesus came for love. And so I have no doubt that some stayed because they got it, but a large number of them dropped the palm branch, turned around and said, this isn't what we're looking for. This isn't what we were hoping for. Just another guy. He's not our king. And I have no doubt that they did that because their blood was red and their hearts beat like yours and mine did. And do, hopefully. But I have no doubt that they had been hearing about Jesus and about the hope that he promised and about the kingdom that he promised. And in their minds, they're thinking, this could be good for me. This could be nice for me. If this Jesus thing works out, this is really going to go well for me. And then as, as it kind of unraveled and as it kind of showed, they realized, oh, Jesus isn't just about me. I'll go this way. And, and you know that reality You know that reality because you spent three years visiting every fertility specialist you can imagine because all you wanted in your life was a baby, and for some reason, God just kept saying no, and so you finally said, you know what, I'm done with this. This isn't what you wanted for me. Well, this is what I want for me, so I don't care about you anymore. You're not the king that was promised. You know about this because the day you put your spouse in the ground, you thought, God, are you there? Is this the hope and the joy that you promised? And now it's a year, two years, three years, ten years later, and you still haven't quite gotten over it. And every time you hear people talk about God isn't who they think he is, you start to think, I think they're right. I think they're right. I don't think he's always cracked up to me. And there's an endless number of stories that start with, you thought God would and end with, but he didn't. And all of the time, if we're only focused on ourselves, the result is we say, I'm done with you. And we walk away. And I say we because you aren't the only one. And I say we because in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain, in the midst of the hardest times of our life, there isn't a one of us who said, I thought you promised hope and joy. I thought you said when we followed you, life would be good. He didn't, by the way. Because the promise that he gives isn't about here. In fact, he gives the opposite promise when he tells us that life's going to be hard. And there's going to be difficulty. But our hope is bigger than this world. You see, the 168 hours that we're talking about doesn't end with disappointed people walking away. The 168 hours that we're talking about together this month 
it continues because there are some people who stick around and Sunday happens and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, he's having a meal with his disciples and he gets arrested. And there's this really quick sham of a trial when there's, there's fabricated evidence and there's, and there's all sorts of lies and misconduct and crazy stuff that we're going to get into in the next couple of weeks. But none of it surprises him. Because he knows one thing above all else. This week goes till Friday. And Friday morning comes, and they find him guilty. And he finds, Jesus finds himself carrying this giant wooden beam across town. Perhaps down the same road that he had ridden a donkey down a few days before. And now instead of crowds shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, he is our Savior, now there's crowds shouting, kill him. Kill him. And he doesn't miss a beat, he doesn't bat an eye, he carries the cross until he can't anymore, and then a man helps him carry it, and he carries it to this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And it's there that they nail his wrist to the wooden beam. And as they lift him up, they nail his ankles to the, to the wooden post. And it's there that he hangs on the cross. That we realize this story is not about us. This story isn't about Jesus coming so that my company is the most profitable. This story isn't about Jesus coming so that all of my dreams get fulfilled. This story isn't about Jesus coming so that life is made easy for me. This story is about Jesus coming to save the world. This story isn't about just me. This story is about every single heart that beats on this earth and Jesus dying to rescue them from the misery that awaits with a promise of eternity. In just a moment, the men are going to pass the bread and the cup. And you're going to have a moment to reflect on, on what this means to reflect on what happened that Friday, that day that he was hung on the cross, not for his own doing, but for our sake. And as you reflect on that moment, I, I want to remind you of one thing, that that's the 120th hour of the week. Because 48 hours later, Two women go to the tomb where he laid. And the tomb was empty. Because not only did he die for you and me, but he died to defeat death eternally. He died so that when we struggle on earth, he died so that when we, 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 we have problems on earth, we don't have to think this is it. We can be reminded, even in the midst of our worst weeks, even in the midst of our darkest times, that there is a hope beyond this life. Because the story doesn't end on Friday. It goes to Sunday.